The headlines tonight. William Howe retreats, leaving Yanks in the white mash. Lennon-White Alberman released on New York Street. And Chelm no to Holocaust as Nazis gas pole dancers. Plus, coming up, an exclusive interview with the man who invented bread fishing. Those are the headlines. Why aren't you laughing? News bang. Dripping with the facts bone dry. 1777. On this day in history, we travel to 17,777 during the American Revolutionary War. British commander in Channel William Howe, fed up with the whole fracas, packed up his red coats and sailed away from the Battle of White Marsh to a more cultured city, Philadelphia. The so-called American patriots, who couldn't even invent central heating or proper biscuits, somehow managed to win independence with a little help from their French and Spanish mates plus some German mercenaries named after a skin rash. The Battle of White Marsh was the last major engagement of 17,777 between those in Whigs and those without them. One bystander, Percival Codswallop IV, recalled, "'Twas a right old kerfuffle. Muskets blazing like Guy Fawkes. Night on steroids, I say, it's enough to put one off afternoon tea." In hindsight, many historians have agreed that if only the Brits had invented air conditioning sooner or at least shared their crumpets with the colonies, this whole war would have been avoided. 1980. On this day in 1980, the unthinkable happened. John Lennon, one half of the popular beat combo The Beatles, was gunned down by a deranged fan outside his New York City home, the Dakota Apartments. Mark David Chapman, clutching a copy of J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye, fired five shots at the unsuspecting Lennon screaming, This is for Holden Caulfield. Witnesses described scenes of chaos as Lennon staggered forward bleeding profusely from his chest, exclaiming, I am the walrus. Local eyewitness Ethel Spraygun told us, I was just watering my window boxes when I heard these shots ring out, bang, bang, bang. I looked down and there he was, John Lennon, clutching his chest and going, please, please help me. It was like that book, you know, catch her in the face if you can. A night to see, said 1941. The Holocaust, a catering company notorious for their undercooked bratwurst, have expanded their services to include a new line of pre-packaged meals targeted at the discerning genocidal maniac on the go. The Chelmno extermination camp, their first outlet outside of Germany, has been operational from December 1941 to April 1943 and will reopen later this June. Their freshly gassed produce has caused quite a stir in occupied Poland with six other camps in the pipeline including Auschwitz-Birkin, Backpacker Lodge, Treblinka Traveler's Rest and Sobibor. They plan to efficiently process 2.7 million people across Europe mostly returning customers who just can't get enough of their authentic Jewish cuisine. In a statement, head chef Heinrich Himmler told us, Vivant to bring the taste of mass murder, Wunder Lager, to your own back garden. Critics have described the venture as heavily stomached, but investors are sure it will bring in zlots by Z millions. News bang. No bullshit, only truth. A mythical unicorn of modern news. The weather continues to dominate our daytime discussion. Next up, we'll have Shakanaka Giles presenting the latest state of the skies. But first, a brief interlude with reports on various topics from our reporters scattered around the globe.
So make sure you're comfy as we move on with this program. Starting off in the north, the day will dawn with a frosty nip in the air, much like the first sip of a hot toddy. It'll be so nippy, even your nose hairs might feel chilled. In the Midlands, it'll be a sunny day, not as hot as a Christmas goose, but warmer than a cinnamon bun straight from the oven. It's the kind of day that makes you long for a good hearty walk. Finally, in the south, it's going to be a bit nippy, but with an unexpected warm-up later. Picture it like your granny's radiator slowly toasting your bum after you've been out all day. In a nutshell, frosty toes, sunny hikes and warming bum toasts. And that's all the weather. Uh, 1991. The Belovezh Accords were signed in 1991, effectively dissolving the Soviet Union and paving the way for the establishment of the Commonwealth of Independent States, CIS. This marked a significant turning point where 15 former constituent republics gained their independence. Since then, the CIS has continued to foster cooperation among its member states. To reflect on this crucial period in world history, we have Brian Bastable with us from Minsk, Belarus, one of the original signatories of the Belovezh Accords. Ladies, gentlemen, comrades in arms, and all freedom fighters for whom this struggle of ours resonates as a call to a higher purpose, listen now as I bring you the inside story of an event that will go down in the annals of history. As a moment when the impossible became not just possible, but a fait accompli. For today, as the sun was in the wrong half of the sky and the shadows were of the wrong length, there was an air of expectancy about this place, as if some huge and unseen force was gathering its strength for the grand finale of a battle that had been raging for many years. And now here they come, the leaders of the three great nations, the harbingers of a new dawn, their faces etched with the grimness of those who know that what they do will change the course of history, possibly for good, possibly for ill. And as the ink dries on the parchment, as it were, there is a sudden silence, broken only by the sound of tears, the rattle of a single camera and the whisper of a collective sigh, as if the weight of centuries has suddenly been lifted from the shoulders of all who were present. Today, then, is a day to remember, a day to celebrate, a day to commemorate in the manner of our choosing, whether that be in the hallowed halls of history or in the dirt and sweat of a battlefield. This, then, is what it is all about, folks. This is the war that keeps on giving. This is the war that wears the faces of the leaders. This is the war that never forgets. This is the war we never want to end. Brian Bastable for News Bang. Etienne le Decise de 2013. A tragic car accident in Singapore's Little India region in 2013 sparked the first significant riot in over 40 years. The incident began when an accident involving a bus led to a dispute with the migrant workers who were involved. The situation escalated, resulting in a mob of around 300 labourers attacking the bus and emergency vehicles. 
This was only the second riot to occur in Singapore since its independence and marked the end of a 44-year period without such incidents. Now, we join our reporter Ken Shit for more on this story. Good evening, degenerates. Welcome to Newsbang, the only place where you can get your daily dose of chaos and carnage straight from the horse's mouth. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we're going back in time to the year 2013, a year that brought us selfies twerking and a riot for the ages in Singapore's Little India region. It all started with a fatal car accident involving a bus full of migrant labourers, but instead of mourning their loss, these angry mobs decided to take matters into their own hands. They attacked the bus like wild animals and even went after the emergency vehicles trying to help. This wasn't some peaceful protest. This was pure chaos unfolding before our very eyes. For over two hours, around 300 enraged individuals wreaked havoc on the streets of Singapore. And let me tell you, they didn't hold back. Windows were smashed, cars were overturned, and all hell broke loose. It was like something out of a nightmare or a really bad horror movie. This riot marked the first major incident of its kind in Singapore in over four decades. And it serves as a stark reminder that even in the most civilized societies, people are capable of unimaginable acts of violence and destruction. So there you have it, folks. A tale of tragedy turned terrifying as mob mentality took over in Little India. And let me tell you, nothing worth having comes easy. You want peace? You gotta fight for it, tooth and nail. Until next time on Newsbang, may your news be as wild as your imagination. A historic gathering took place in 1880 as Paul Kruger, also known as Oom Paul, announced the restoration of the government and Volksraid of the South African Republic to a crowd of 10,000 Boers. The Boers were descendants of Afrikaans-speaking free burghers who lived in Southern Africa during the 7th to 19th centuries. Today, Join our reporter Hardiman Pester for an in-depth look into this significant event and its implications for both South Africa and the international political landscape. It's an honour to have you with us tonight, Umpal. You've done such an incredible job in restoring the government and Volksrad of the South African Republic. Indeed, we've had our fair share of challenges, but we persevered and worked hard to ensure that our people's voice is heard. I can imagine. The Boers have a rich history and culture here in Southern Africa. Yes, we are proud of our heritage and we'll continue to work towards maintaining our independence and self-rule. That's wonderful. I'd love to learn more about the Volksrad and how it functions. The Volksrad uh, is, the, uh, is the legislative body of our republic, composed of elected representatives from throughout the land. It's responsible for making laws and governance. It's incredible to see the democratic process in action. Yes, we, we believe in the power of the people and their right to self-governance. That's truly admirable. What inspired you to restore the Volksrad and the government? Um, uh, the will of our people. They demanded a voice in their government, and we listened. We're committed to transparency and accountability in our leadership. It's inspiring to see the dedication and the passion of the Boers for their land and their people. We believe in the power of unity and determination. We've faced many challenges, but we're determined to build a better future for ourselves and our children. Indeed. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today, Umpal. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your interest in our republic and our people. Thank you, Umpal. We'll be sure to keep our audience updated on any developments in the South African Republic. Hold on a moment, Pesto. Did you just say the South African Republic? Yes, I did. Why? 
because that's not what we're discussing here. We're in the present day, not some alternate history where the Boers won. I'm sorry, Martin. I must have misunderstood the instructions. No, you misunderstood everything, Pesto. The fact that you even managed to book this interview with Oom Paul just shows how out of touch you are with current events. I apologise, Martin. I'll try to do better next time. You'd better, because if you don't, I'll show you just how irrelevant you really are. News Bang, the lifeboat of news sailing through the storm of untruth. 2010. In a groundbreaking moment for Japanese-made interstellar spacecraft, Icarus has successfully made history by navigating Venus's atmosphere using only solar sail technology. This innovative craft has showcased the true potential of harnessing sunlight for propulsion on extraordinary interplanetary journeys. Calamity Prenderville from J News will now give us an in-depth report on this remarkable feat of engineering and its implications for future space exploration. Ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts and put on your space helmets because we are heading to Venus. Well, not us exactly, but a very special piece of space origami called Ikaros. In a cosmic game of catch me if you can with our neighbourly planet Venus, Ikaros has just made history, or should I say, er, uh, space Tory. Imagine a giant golden kite gliding through the stars, powered by nothing but the sun's rays. That's Ikaros for you the very first spacecraft to harness solar sail technology in the interplanetary void. Sounds like something out of Buck Rogers or Doctor Who, doesn't it? But it's real! Now, I know what you're thinking. Solar sails? How does that work without sea shanties and a salty breeze? Well, Icarus catches not wind, but light from the sun with its ultra-thin, shiny solar sails to push itself along like a skateboarder catching a gust on an empty road. And while it may be as Japanese as sushi and sumo wrestling, let's pause to consider how British innovation must have spurred them on. It's likely that an overheard conversation in a queue for tea sparked this historic journey. Or perhaps inspiration struck while watching Coronation Street. The spacecraft flew by Venus at a jaw-dropping distance of 80,800 kilometres, close enough to wave at any Venusian tourist but far enough to avoid the celestial equivalent of clipping the wing mirror on a cosmic roundabout. This is no small feat. It's one giant glide for mankind. So tonight, as we tuck ourselves into our beds here on Earth, let's spare a thought for little Icaros. It's out there cutting about the Milky Way with its solar-powered wings unfurled, showing the universe just what a bit of sunlight and ingenuity can do. Until next time, keep your eyes on the skies. You never know what might sail by. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang saying over and out. Newsbang, striking the match of truth and igniting the fuse of public discourse. 1980. John Lennon, a renowned English musician and songwriter, was tragically murdered in 1980 outside the Dakota Apartments in New York City. This historic landmark is the oldest luxury apartment building in Manhattan and has had several famous residents like Mark David Chapman, who later admitted he killed Lennon due to the character Holden Caulfield from J.D. Salinger's novel inspiring him. Now, our reporter Smithsonian Moss will provide more context to the event. 
Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Wahoo, my dears! Tis yours truly, Smithsonian Moss, emerging from the depths of the space-time tunnel in the name of culture. Tonight, we shall dive into the pulsating, neon-lit year of 1980 a time so rife with pop and political absurdity. It shall leave thee panting for your cyberspace bong. But first, darling, let's pay our respects to the Beatle slain in his sanctuary by a crazed fan. Yep, you heard it. The Fab Four's founding father, John Lennon, was laid low by Mark David Chapman, a man of such emotional instability he would make even the Mad Hatter spill the tea. The poor boy was gripped by the green-eyed monster, you see. As he fell under the spell of J.D. Salinger's tortured soul, young Holden Caulfield. Alas, little did John know, his melancholic croon would be the impetus of Chapman's descent into infamy and the dismantling of Lennon's own twisted fairy tale romance. And what better stage for this tragic finale than the historical halls of the Dakota Apartments? This is no ordinary old-world residential complex. You might even say its architecture would cause one to wonder— Was it designed by the same architect who built Tim Burton's dreamscape? This 1884 monolith has a grand history of housing the uber-privileged, or as the Brits like to say, pochest posh people, in addition to being the site of a notorious murder. But hey, even the richest don't avoid life's dramatic twists, do they? But let's spare the details. In this day and age, Can one truly fathom a world where a beetle's death was shocking, my dear comrades? For today, John Lennon's story serves a reminder that the universe can be both fantastical and merciless. But don't fret about it, I'm the one making it seem ridiculous. You stay here, safe and sheltered in this digital realm and the Dakota apartments, basking in the glory of Smithsonian's satirical charm. Remember, stay witty and keep it cheeky, because honestly... There's no use in taking life too seriously. It just might murder your soul. Thank you, and don't forget to smile, America. News bang! Saving the world from itself, one fact at a time. 1854. The News Bang show is already partway through. In 1854, an event took place that changed the course of Catholicism. Pope Pius IX proclaimed the dogmatic definition of the Immaculate Conception, asserting that the Virgin Mary was conceived without original sin. This powerful moment was a cornerstone of devotion to Mary throughout the history of the faith. Despite various trials and tribulations such as losing control over the Papal States, Pope Pius IX was a significant figure in shaping Catholic doctrine during his tenure and we've invited our religious expert Pastor Kevin Monstrance to discuss further implications of this defining moment in Catholicism's history. Ah, Good evening, friends. Your humble Pastor Kevin has returned once again to provide spiritual guidance through these uncertain times. Now, the year 1854 was a momentous one for Catholics around the world, thanks to Pope Pius IX. What a character he was, fond of taking long walks along the Tiber while composing his latest papal doctrine, often getting so lost in thought he'd walk straight into the river 
Why, the Vatican laundresses were kept busy wringing out his robes every other day? But I digress. In 1854, Pius made a historic declaration regarding the Immaculate Conception of Mary, Mother of Jesus. This stated that dear Mary was conceived free from original sin, unlike the rest of humanity, an important point of doctrine for Catholics, and not without controversy. Why I heard the debate became so heated that one Cardinal Benedetto, over dinner with the Abbot of Clairvaux, wagered 50 florins that he could prove Mary was no different than any other woman conceived in sin. The Abbot accepted the bet, eager for easy money. Right then said Benedetto. I shall prove my point through the use of mine. He proceeded to gesticulate wildly, first depicting Adam and Eve partaking of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, then miming Eve in the pangs of labour prior to bearing her first child, Cain. Aha! exclaimed Benedetto. Proof that the first conception was marred by original sin, and thus all conceptions thereafter bore the same stain. The abbot stroked his beard thoughtfully. When Benedetto had finished, the abbot stood and began his own series of silent theatrics. He pointed heavenward, then acted out a beam of light shining down onto the form of a sleeping woman, the Virgin Mary. This light, he indicated with prayerful gestures, cleansed her soul and made her immaculate. Checkmate! Flustered Cardinal Benedetto conceded the bet. As they left, the innkeeper approached to collect payment for their meals. Benedetto sighed. I fear I'm short on funds now, my friend, but for your payment, please enjoy this interpretive performance on the Immaculate Conception. And he launched into his mime routine once more. <laughs> the Lenx clergy will go to win a theological debate. But it reminds us all of the eternal mystery surrounding our most blessed Mother Mary, the Immaculate Conception, a holy riddle for the ages. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Newsbang's final roundup. Here's a look at tomorrow's front pages. The Times. Patriot George Washington ousts colonial British in Great Bridge showdown. Daily Express yanks bamboozled Brits in American war for some reason. The Guardian. British redcoats beaten back by plucky Yank rebels. The Sun. Forget Waterloo. Washington wins Battle of the Bridge. Uh, and... The dandy annual 19,732 has gone, with an amusing cartoon strip called Big Lizzie Brandishes Her Hessian Slicer at Redcoat Randy. That's a reference to the War of Independence or something, I think. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.